Most sexual assaults go unreported. At Sarnco, we believe, empower, and advocate for all survivors. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted and needs support, call 844-644-6435. 844-644-6435. At Sarnco, we're here for you. It's the biggest development since the start of the Israel-Gaza war about seven weeks ago. Israel and Hamas reached a deal that pauses fighting in Gaza. As of Monday afternoon, Hamas has freed dozens of hostages in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners being held in Israel. In Israel, families united, cheering the hostages' return, Claire Parker has been in Israel covering the releases as these suspenseful days and nights unfolded. It is Friday, November 24th. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty still. It's unclear first whether it will hold. It's unclear what will happen next. It's very uncertain in what condition the hostages will arrive medically, you know, physically and emotionally. We still don't have a lot of information about the conditions that hostages endured, but their family members have started sharing some details. Eyal Nari, whose aunt Adina Moshe was released by Hamas on November 24th, spoke about her condition. She was in complete darkness. She had to adjust to the sunlight. She was walking with her eyes down. There's going to be basically a long road of recovery ahead. (laughs) From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Monday, November 27th. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. Today we speak with The Post's Cairo Bureau Chief, Claire Parker, who's in Israel right now, about the latest on how this major moment came to be, what happened, and what might come next. So by now it's been more than a month since Hamas attacked Israel and killed at least 1,200 people there, Um, and since Israel invaded Gaza, killing more than 13,300 Palestinians, How significant, Claire, is this pause and this hostage prisoner release that we've seen? It's hugely significant. It's the first pause in hostilities since the war began um, and is providing Palestinians in Gaza with a a much-needed moment of relief from really relentless Israeli bombardment. And then uh, for Israelis, a huge... um, victory for hostage families who have been trying so hard to push for a deal to bring their loved ones home from Hamas captivity. Mm. And so what were the initial terms of this deal? So the um, deal was structured as a four-day pause in fighting with possibility for extension. And um, under the deal, the International Committee of the Red Cross 
said it would work as an intermediary in um, transferring hostages held in Gaza to authorities in Israel and then Palestinian prisoners um, from Israel to the West Bank. And basically this worked according to a, a one to three ratio. So for every one Israeli hostage that Hamas released, three Palestinian prisoners would be freed from Israeli jails. Um, and then as part of this deal as well, additional humanitarian aid um, was, is supposed to come into Gaza and has been coming into Gaza. Um, and medical supplies have been distributed to hospitals in Gaza. So it's allowed for a little bit of relief of the humanitarian situation there. Mm-hmm. And so how did this deal happen? Like who brokered it? So it was a long time in the making. It followed weeks of talks between Israel, the United States, Egypt, and Qatar, which represented Hamas, um, because Israel and the U.S. don't talk to Hamas directly. So both the Qataris and the Egyptians um, played key roles as intermediaries in helping to broker the deal. And and the talks took place in Doha, the Qatari capital. Obviously, there were lots of family members who were anticipating this exchange, this release— Did you connect with any family members before this was happening? How were they feeling about it? So I've been in touch with a a number of families of uh, hostages who are are still in captivity in Gaza. And one of the people I've spoken with is uh, Gil Dickman, who's 31 years old from Tel Aviv. The weeks and months past October 7th were a complete nightmare for us. Um, and his cousin, Carmel Gotts, 39, was taken hostage on October 7th from Kibbutz Be'eri, where she lived, lives. Um, and her uh, sister-in-law, Yarden Roman Gotts, um, is also believed to have been taken hostage that day. Um, and Gil told me about how much of a nightmare the past weeks have been for, for him and his family, um, the agony of, of not knowing what happened to their relatives. We don't have additional information about where they are or whether they're dead or alive. All we know is that they're kidnapped, and we assume that it's in the hands of Hamas, but we don't know for sure. You know, continuing to to have days go by without any sense of when they'll be coming home. But he's also found some support and, and solace and um, kind of uplift from other families of hostages who have really banded together um, to to both support one another, but also to advocate, to protest, to call for Uh, their relatives' release. People always look at you with the kind of eyes full of mercy, uh, with a look full of mercy. But, like, we're all, we're all in this. And we can all understand how how we all feel. And so... Could you just walk us through how all of this went down, like how it worked starting on Friday when the releases really began? Yeah, so the deal took effect on Friday with a pause in fighting first at 7 a.m. local time. And at that point, you know, the guns went silent. The fighting inside Gaza stopped and um, Hamas and Palestinian militants stopped firing rockets into Israel. Israeli airstrikes on Gaza stopped as well. And then that was followed by sort of hours of waiting um, for the first, you know, hostages to be gathered, located, and then handed over to the Red Cross uh, to bring back to Israel. Um, And sort of in the lead up to that moment, which ended up happening in, in early evening, 
Israel was preparing to receive the first group of hostages, getting hospitals ready for medical treatment, putting psychologists and social workers on standby to basically work with the former hostages and their families to reintroduce them to society and to their lives. And for many of them, their lives have changed quite a bit after October 7th. Um, So it's going to be a long process. And, And so then what happened next? What happened on Saturday? What did we see happen sort of over the course of the weekend? So these releases continued um, Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, there was sort of a bit of a a hiccup um, in which there was a a delay. And Hamas was saying um, that Israel had not upheld its side of the bargain by allowing sufficient uh, humanitarian aid under the deal in and into northern Gaza. Um, and so there was this period where it kind of seemed like it all could fall apart, but in the end, the second batch of hostages was released, um, and that happened again on, on Sunday. It was difficult for, uh, Israeli authorities to get a a handle really on, on how many possible, um, hostages were in Gaza. And part of what's complicated that is that, um, Some are held by groups other than Hamas, other militant groups in the Gaza Strip. And so Hamas doesn't even have a full tally of all the hostages. But the the estimate that Israeli authorities have been working with um, ahead of this deal is that there are about 240 hostages in Gaza. And since the, the deal took effect on Friday, 58 of them have been released. And those include... Um, 40 Israelis and then 18 non-Israeli nationals. So the majority of them are Thai, Thai workers, 17 Thai workers, and then one Filipino man who is a a caretaker for an elderly Israeli man in in one of the kibbutzes um, in the south that was attacked. Do you know anything about how um, these hostages who've been released, how they're doing, how they were treated? So the hostages themselves um, have been uh, sort of very protected and insulated from the media. Um, And I think, you know, partly this is the realization that these are very vulnerable people who have come out of a a very traumatic experience. And also many of them are children um, or elderly women. So we haven't heard from the hostages directly um, but some of their family members have given statements to the media, um, and and we've heard from some of the directors of the hospitals where they're staying, who say that um, most of them are, are medically stable, not all of them. There's an 84-year-old woman who um, was released Sunday who's in critical condition um, because she had not received the medical care that she needed while in captivity and otherwise, what we're, what we're sort of understanding so far from these family statements and from um, what is getting out uh, about the treatment of, of hostages was that they reported that they were, you know, underfed um, and forced to sleep on benches, but uh, did not account. We haven't received any accounts so far of um, hostages having experienced violence or physical abuse at the hands of their captors. And then it, it seems like what we're understanding is that there's sort of a a range in the access to information that people had while in captivity. So Some had access to Hebrew radio and they were able to learn about what happened to their relatives and their communities on October 7th. Um, But for others of them, they're they're emerging from 50 plus days of of captivity. 
they don't know what's happened during that time. And they're finding out that their husbands, their parents were killed on October 7th um, and their communities have been completely destroyed. I know one of the children we saw released was a four-year-old girl, a U.S. Israeli citizen. Um, What do we know about her? Yes. So um, her name is Abigail Eden, and she turned four on Friday while still in captivity. Um, And she was finally released on on Sunday. Um, And she's become sort of a symbol of the the hostage crisis. Um, President Biden has spoken about her repeatedly as she's American-Israeli, as you mentioned. She's free, and Jill and I, together with so many Americans, are praying for the fact that she is going to be all right. Thank God she's home. And she was taken hostage on October 7th after her parents were shot dead by by militants that day. Um, And her two older siblings were able to hide and and escape capture. Um, But she's been by herself in captivity a toddler, um, for, for 50 days. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's, you know, a lot of concern about her well-being. Um, we, you know, obviously haven't heard from her directly, but her aunt, um, gave a statement to the media last night after she was flown to a hospital in, in Israel and said, basically, we're taking care of her as a family. She has relatives, you know, she might be an orphan, but we're, we're supporting her. She has family, and we're taking care of her, so don't worry about it. And it's very important to let her be now with the family. And uh, no uh, press and photographs and uh, paparazzi. It's very important for her uh, safety and health right now. There's a lot of mixed emotions these days, I think, for those families who are still waiting. I've, I've spoken to several of them, and they say... You know, they're happy to, they're really happy to see um, women and children, hostages come home. But they, their message is basically, we need everyone home. We need all of them home and, and our loved ones too. And so that's going to be their, their fight going forward. And they're, they're not stopping their advocacy, both within Israel and, and abroad, um, especially in the United States, to, to push for that to happen. After the break, what we know now about Palestinians released from Israel and how much longer there will be a pause in the fighting. We'll be right back. So in exchange for the hostages... Israel released Palestinian prisoners, and a colleague of ours, the Post's Louisa Loveluck, was in the West Bank when those prisoners were returning to crowds in the street. I just want to play a dispatch from her. This was the moment on Friday that 23-year-old Asila Titi reunited with her mother, Khitam, after more than a year in jail. It was getting late into the evening by this point, and Khitam had been waiting all afternoon for her daughter. In these clips, you can hear that she's overcome with emotion. She says that her heart is on fire. So Louisa told us that Titi was arrested for a fight with a prison guard when she visited her brother in prison. What else, Claire, can you tell us about the Palestinian prisoners who were released? 
and how that unfolded in the West Bank. So the majority of the Palestinian prisoners on this list of 300 possible detainees who could be released under this deal um, are male teenagers arrested in the past two years, ranging in age from, from 14 to 18. Um, and then there are about 30 women and girls on the list. And the prisoners are accused of a variety of crimes that range from throwing stones to um, attempted murder. But the details on a lot of them are, are rather murky. Not all of them have been convicted, as far as I understand, and it's it's sort of unclear um, what exactly uh, the severity of the crimes um, are. And for for Palestinians, though, I mean, this prisoner release is a is a big deal. There were huge crowds gathering in the West Bank on on Friday evening, um, and every evening since, uh, waiting for for the releases to occur. People celebrating, people greeting the released prisoners like heroes, hoisting them on their shoulders, you know, crying out in, in joy. Um, Israeli security forces kind of tried to clamp down on this with, with tear gas and kind of crowd containment mechanisms. Um, but uh, it, it was a real moment of joy for the families of those prisoners who were released as well. In West Bank refugee camps where many of these prisoners live, there's this feeling, though, that even though this is a moment of, of joy, it's a bit tempered by the knowledge that, you know, given the the clampdown and daily or weekly uh, raids and, and arrests of Palestinians across the West Bank by Israeli security forces, that it's just kind of part of this endless cycle of, of arrests and releases and that, that happen under Israeli occupation in the West Bank. And so the steel included a pause in the attacks in Gaza and also the transfer of humanitarian aid. What happened there? You know, um, what does this aid that was able to get into Gaza mean for people's lives there? So it's, you know, huge in one sense, but also nothing in another. And, and aid groups have, have been making this point that it's really the amount of of aid um, under this deal is getting scaled up, including some fuel trucks, which are incredibly needed for operating really everything in Gaza, um, bakeries, hospitals, you know, even driving the trucks of aid themselves. Um, and so this is really essential, desperately, desperately needed aid in a, um, in the, it's really a besieged enclave. It's, you know, there's only been a trickle of aid coming in. People are desperate, they're displaced, um, they are living in unsanitary conditions, disease is beginning to spread, um, says the World Health Organization. And so it's it's basically providing much-needed um, relief, but aid groups are, are quick to say it's not at all enough, and they're calling for a, a permanent ceasefire and, and more aid um, to be sent into Gaza as well. Claire, how fragile was this release deal? I mean, more hostages have since returned to Israel and more prisoners have been released in the West Bank. But you mentioned that there was a momentary stop to the release process on Saturday. Tell me more about what happened there. So there was a seven-hour delay to the release process Saturday, and this was only day two of the four-day pause in fighting and and hostage release. And so 
it was a scary moment for many families of of hostages and also for people in the Gaza Strip who um, were kind of nervously waiting to see whether this pause in fighting would collapse. Um, and that that delay was after Hamas said that, among other things, Israel was not allowing humanitarian aid to reach parts of northern Gaza that need it. And so it, it seemed as if... Um, the deal was kind of on the verge of falling apart. And, and Hamas also said that Israel was not upholding the, the ratio that had been established under which three Palestinian prisoners would be released for every one Israeli hostage. And, and so there was a seven-hour delay. There was emergency diplomacy by, by Qatar and Egypt, kind of furious talks to, to keep this thing going. And then in the end, on Saturday, um, Hamas did release another uh, 13 Israeli hostages and Israel set free 39 more Palestinian prisoners. And so now it's been, you know, more than a month since October 7th when those first hostages were taken. What were some of the other factors and forces that made this deal possible? Like, what role did these families play in in helping this to come about? So the families played a significant role, um, and they really helped to to turn public opinion um, in favor of of at least a, a, a temporary pause in, in fighting to allow for the release of these hostages. Um, after October 7th, I mean, Israel was reeling from the attack. There, there was sort of a desire for um, both both revenge and then also to to stamp out Hamas as that has been the the stated goal of the um, Israeli government and military since since the war began. Um, and a lot of concern among um, officials and, and military leaders at first that that any sort of pause in fighting would allow Hamas to to regroup. Um, but then uh, the families over time, they've launched this campaign from the, the get-go, um, plastering uh, posters with um, all of the hostages' faces and names and ages all over. I mean, you walk in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or really anywhere in in Israel, and you see um, you see these photos on bus stops, on buildings, projected on the sides of yeah. of buildings. Wow. Um, so they basically made these hostages impossible to ignore. And then I think their sort of personal stories um, really just tugged at the the heartstrings of the Israeli public. Um, and eventually, got Netanyahu, the prime minister, and his uh, security and defense establishment, the top leaders of the various security wings to kind of line up um, behind this deal. So, Claire, we're talking on Monday. Um, it's Monday evening where you are in Israel. Um, and right now the pause is still happening. How much longer do we expect um, that there will be this pause? So under the original deal, this would have been the final day, um, but the deal did leave open a possibility for extension. The, the terms were sort of if Hamas releases an additional 10, for every additional 10 hostages they release, um, there could be another day added of, of pause in the fighting. And so we received news Monday that uh, there will be a, a two-day extension of this pause. We believe still um, Israeli women and children will be released during that time. What about Gil? Um, when you last checked in with him, you know, what has he told you about his relatives and his perspective on what's still unfolding? 
So his relatives have not been released yet. Um, and he's certainly sort of in the camp that that is pushing for a longer pause. Um, and I think, you know, hostage families are sort of divided in some ways over, um, you know, what the, the kind of longer term solution should should be. But um, Gil, at least, is hoping that this this pause, this um, release of hostages and prisoners kind of portends a, a more peaceful phase of the war. And it's the victory of life over death in general, not only within the fight of the hostage families, and not only in Israel, but also in the whole world, because it, it, it's a, the, the debate here is what's more important to you right now, the life of people on both sides, or, you know, revenge and blood. Israeli leaders, though, have, have signaled that they have no intention of, of stopping the war. This is not to them a, a prelude to a ceasefire. Um, and that uh, we're hearing from, from analysts and, and um, signals in Israeli media that the next kind of target will be Khan Yunus in Gaza, in southern Gaza, um, which is a, a densely populated area where residents before the pause have received leaflets telling them to evacuate, which could signal a, a bombing campaign there. Um, and so, you know, it, I think a lot of Gazans are very afraid and, and probably, unfortunately, rightly so, that, that a, a fresh wave of bombing um, is coming their way very shortly. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And, you know, even more importantly, thank you for all of the incredible reporting that you're doing there. Thanks for having me. Claire Parker is the Cairo Bureau Chief for The Post, currently reporting from Israel. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Monica Campbell with help from Rena Flores. Thanks to Louisa Loveluck, Jesse Mesner-Hage, Ariel Plotnik, and Emma Talkoff. You've been hearing a lot about Washington Post subscriptions from us lately, because ad-free audio is now available for all Washington Post subscribers in Apple Podcasts. But here's another reason to subscribe. It's our biggest sale of the year. Our Black Friday sale runs now through November 29th. You can get a whole year of The Washington Post, plus that ad-free audio, for just 99 cents every four weeks. Don't miss the chance. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thanks. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.